We've, we've discussed the big five traits. Extroversion, that's sensitivity to positive emotion. Neuroticism, it's sensitivity to negative emotion. Not all negative emotions, mostly fear, anxiety, and emotional pain seem to load on neuroticism. Um, disgust, which is another negative emotion, <clears throat> seems to be more associated <coughs> with conscientiousness, particularly its orderliness aspect. Agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness. We're going to talk about agreeableness today. Agreeableness is a very difficult personality dimension to understand, I think, partly because it's difficult to dissociate from neuroticism and, and as well from extroversion. Because agreeable people like you, and so that kind of sounds like extroversion, and disagreeable people sound like they're hard to get along with, and they sort of are. People who are high in neuroticism are hard to get along with too, and they tend to be volatile and irritable. And so, most of the time, if you're engaged in a contentious issue with someone, and emotions flare, it, it usually has more to do with trait neuroticism than with disagreeableness per se. So, what I'm going to do is try to describe to you what the agreeable trait is on both of its dimensions, and also to lay out the pros and cons of existence on that normal distribution, trait normal distribution, at more or less every point. Because I think, my, the way I look at it anyways, is that of all the traits, agreeableness is the one that seems to come with the most marked positive and negative aspects, features, let's say, so we don't confuse it with aspects, the most positive and negative features at each point on the distribution. It's a very complex, seems to be a very, very complex dimension. So, I'll read you some of the questions from the big five aspect scale, and that'll give you kind of an initial uh, rule of thumb estimate about whether or not you're agreeable or disagreeable. And so here, here are some of the questions. Uh, imagine that you're answering these for yourself on a scale from one to five, strongly disagree to strongly agree. So the first question is, <clears throat> am not interested in other people's problems. So if you are interested in other people's problems, that tilts you towards agreeableness, and I believe that's a Agreeableness is divided into compassion and politeness, which also sound like very positive things, right? Because everyone wants to be compassionate and everyone wants to be polite, and so you might say, well, is, is that a virtue? Are those virtues, with the other end, being actually negative, to be not compassionate, not polite? It's certainly worded that way, and that's actually a mistake, because we know that these traits are normally distributed, roughly speaking, right? And that that means that there has to be positive and, and negative features at every single position on the distribution. And so to make the, make the presupposition, for example, that being extroverted is being better than in, being introverted, or that being emotionally stable is necessarily better than being neurotic, is to make a, a kind of a kind, a confusion of, of moral, uh, what, obligation with trait, with, with trait position. You have to assume that there's advantages and disadvantages all, all the way along, or, or the distribution wouldn't have set itself up that way, especially because these seems, seem to be biologically instantiated traits. So, anyways, um, if you're interested in other people's problems, they like to unburden themselves to you, you care about it. That's a mark of compassion. If you're more or less indifferent to other people's stupid problems and you wish they'd just get on with it, uh, then you're less compassionate, you're harsher and, and more and more, um, well, at the extreme, more callous. Ah, uh, let's see. Respect authority. That's politeness. That's part of agreeableness. Um, rarely, let's see. 
Feel others' emotions. Compassion. Inquire about others' well-being. Compassion. Can't be bothered with others' needs. Take advantage of others. That's disagreeable, obviously. Sympathize with others' feelings. Avoid imposing my will on others. Wait for others to lead the way. Okay, I think, I, I think all of those were associated with trait agreeableness or disagreeableness. So let's, let's think about this for a minute. So I'm going to tell you how I conceptualize agreeableness. The first thing you want to know is that women are more agreeable than men. About half a standard deviation. And that's approximately enough so that if you took a random male and a random female out of the population and you tried to guess who was more agreeable and you guessed the female, you'd be right about 60% of the time. So, and, but what, what, what's interesting about that, and this is something also to keep in mind, is about normal distributions, you know. So, imagine you have a normal distribution, so that most people are in the middle. And then you have another normal distribution, male and female, and mostly they overlap. But you see out here, and out here, they don't overlap at all. And so, even though on average men and women don't, just don't aren't that much different in terms of their levels of agreeableness by the group. If you go out and you look at the extremes, they're very different. So all of the most agreeable people are women, and all of the most disagreeable people are men. And the thing is, the extremes are often what matter, rather than what's in the middle. And so one of the ways that's reflected in, in society, by the way, is there's way more men in prison. And the best personality predictor of being imprisoned is to be low in agreeableness. It makes you callous. Now you may think, well, what's the opposite of compassion and politeness? And the answer to that is, I think it's best sort of conceptualized as a, as a trading game. So let's say that we're going to play repeated trading games. And if you're very agreeable, then you're going to bargain harder on my behalf than you're going to bargain on your own behalf. Whereas if you're very disagreeable, you're going to do the reverse. You're going to think, I'm in this trading game for me, and you're going to take care of your own interests. Where an agreeable person is going to say, no, no, at best, this is, at, at worst, this has to be 50-50, but I'd like to help you every way I can. Okay, now the question, okay, so you kind of you understand that. Now the advantage to being agreeable then is that you're good in teams and you're very much likely to give other people credit. The bad, the downside of being agreeable is that you're not very good at putting forward your own interests. And so one of the things that predicts salary across time, for example, is agreeableness, and it predicts it negatively. And so it's part of the reason why women get paid less than men. And this is something for the women in the class to really listen to. Because you, how you get paid across time depends on a very large number of things, right? It depends on your skills and your abilities and your position and your social network and all of that. But the other thing it depends on is whether or not you actually go ask for money. Or maybe that you don't even ask. Because actually you don't ask for money. You tell people that you need to be paid more or something they don't like will happen. And I don't mean as a threat. I mean that you have to be willing, when you're negotiating, to have an alternative. You go talk to your boss, who isn't going to give you money, because everyone wants money, right? It's a competitive game. You're going to have to, be, you're going to, have to go there and say, look, here's what I do. Here's why it's useful. Here's why you have to give me more money. And this is my opportunities if you don't. And then you're not taking your boss's money anyways, because it's very, seldom, very frequently the case that he's working for a whopping big company. But he needs an excuse to give you money, because everyone's asking for money all the time. And so you have to put your case forward powerfully and disagreeably. 
Now, you don't want to do it too disagreeably because then he's going to think that you're a son of a bitch and maybe he's not going to give you anything and maybe you'll get fired for being mouthy and all of that. And that certainly happens to people who are too disagreeable. You've got to get the balance right. But it's definitely the case. And the other thing that happens to women that's also worth noting, and this is probably because they're higher in negative emotion, is they tend to underestimate their own utility in business settings. Right? Because if you're trying to evaluate what you're like, and you're more tilted towards negative emotion, then the things that you do that are wrong are going to stand out more, more on the foreground than the things that you do that are right. So if you go into a negotiation and you're uncertain already, because you have self-doubts, and then you're agreeable in the negotiation, what's going to happen is that you're not going to win as often. And winning in, in, in a business setting or in a career development setting means more opportunity for promotion and more revenue generated. Now, the downside of that, of course, is as you climb the business hierarchy is that you also have to take on more responsibility. And that responsibility is sometimes unpleasant as well, especially to people who are agreeable, because you're not necessarily liked if you're in a position of authority. And agreeable people really like to be liked. It's their primary motiv motivator, because they're concerned about the maintenance, I would say, of, 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 of intimate, positive relationships. I mean, that also makes them conflict avoidant. Okay, so now, you guys can think about this, but, the, but I'll, I'll tell you why I think the personality differences between men and women exist. Now, these are speculative hypotheses, but they're reasonably well documented by, by the relevant literature. So let's, let's think about it. The first thing we might think about is, what's the difference between men and women? Well, how do they differ? Well, the first thing we might observe is that if you look at personality differences be, be, between pu prepubescent boys and girls, they're not very large. Boys and girls don't differ in terms of their, their trait neuroticism, for example. What happens is that when puberty kicks in, women's trait neuroticism rises, and it stays higher than men for the rest of their life. And this is why you, you see this reflected in the different kinds of psychopathology that beset the two sexes. So men are overrepresented in alcoholism, drug abuse, antisocial personality, and a, a host of learning disorders, as well as attention deficit disorder. And women are overrepresented in depression and anxiety, primarily. That seems to be tightly associated with higher levels of trait neuroticism. Because maybe it's, if you're at the 95th percentile or higher, let's say, in trait neuroticism, there isn't much different than, difference between that and being somewhat prone to depression and anxiety. And because the curves overlap, you know, the, 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 the curves aren't identical, the normal distributions aren't identical for men and women, you tilt the one to the, to the right, to the women's curve to, to the right towards higher levels of neuroticism, you go out and you look for the person in 20 who has the highest levels of negative emotion. It's much more likely to be female than male. Okay, so let's see if we can figure out why. So, I'm going to tell you some things, basic differences between men and women, and you can tell me what you think about it if you, or if you agree or disagree. Okay, first, size differential emerges between men and women at puberty, right? Because boys and girls are roughly the same size and roughly the same strength. But men get bigger at puberty when the testosterone kicks in. And more importantly, not only do they get taller and heavier, but their upper body strength is much higher. And that's a real issue for, for combat. Because human beings punch. There's other animals that do that. Kangaroos do that too. Eh? So we're not, the, we're not the only people that punch. But we have clubs on the ends of our arms. And so that's how we defend ourselves. And so if you have a lot of upper body strength, especially across the shoulders, and you're heavier, then you can step into the punch and it's a lot more devastating. Now it is the case that if you look at the statistics for physical altercations in marriage, women attack their husbands more often than the husbands attack their wives. Well, you think, why is that? Well, 
let's assume that there isn't any reason other than both people in a relationship can get upset and the women know that if they hit their husbands nothing's really going to happen right because if you're a rel you know if you're a woman about that high and your husband is say my height you're unless you hit me with an object or something that's sharp the probability that you're going to do me any serious damage is pretty low you might hurt me but if i do the reverse and hit you and i really hit you then i might kill you and so the reason at least one of the reasons why women can be more physically aggressive in minor ways in a relationship is because everyone knows the wife and the husband equally that the consequence of the physical aggression is much more limited so men do more serious damage to women but women are more aggressive in relationships so that's interesting so okay so there's a there's a body size difference that's important a strength differential that's important next thing i think so let's assume that the reason that women are higher in sensitivity to negative emotion is because the world is actually more dangerous to women right because that would be the most logical reason why there would be a sex difference in a sex difference in something like fear or sensitivity to punishment well first there's the danger of physical altercation Second, there's the sexual danger. So women become sexually vulnerable at puberty. And why do I say vulnerable? Well, it's straightforward. It's because the cost of sex for women is way higher than it is for men. Or, and it certainly has been throughout our evolutionary history. Because if a man has an unwanted sexual encounter, well, then he walks away and maybe he's persecuted by the state or prosecuted by the state for it. But if a woman has an unwanted, unwarranted, or incautious sexual encounter and she ends up pregnant, then well, in traditional societies, that's, you're just done. And even in modern societies that are rich, like ours, you're, it's, it's a, I don't have to go into that. It's big trouble. No matter what you do about it, it's big trouble. So being, being more nervous about that makes perfect sense. But then here's the last thing. And I think that women's nervous systems are not adapted to women. I think women's nervous systems are adapted to the mother-infant dyad. And because you are not the same creature when you have an infant, not at all. You're way more vulnerable. And it's partly because you have to express the vulnerability of the infant and you also have to care for it, right? So you think about an infant, especially under nine months. So let's say, how are you going to be wired up if you're going to optimally care for an infant under nine months? And I'm saying under nine months because women generally do the bulk of childcare for infants who are under nine months old. And part of the reason for that, there's a whole host of reasons, but part of the reasons for that, obviously, is that they breastfeed. But imagine what you need to be wired up biologically in order to care for an infant. First of all, they're very demanding, right? Because they're completely helpless, and they're demanding 24 hours a day. And it's quite, it, it's quite, uh, it's quite an emotional load. And an infant under nine months is never wrong. Right? What you do to an infant under nine months is when they're in distress, you always respond. You never tell the infant, get your act together and stop whining, right? Which you can do, say, to, an in to a child that's 18 months old. You can start having that sort of conversation. But under nine months, it's like nothing is the infant's fault. It's surrounded in an extraordinarily threatening world. And you have to be responsive to what it needs, regardless of what you want. And you have to be very sensitive to the threats that emerge in the environment. And so I think the price that women pay for that ability to have an intimate relationship with infants in the very earliest stages of development is that their nervous systems are actually wired so that they can perform that role optimally. And the disadvantage to that is that having a temperament like that doesn't work that well when you're dealing with adult men, especially when you're dealing with them in a business environment.
because it's not the same thing. Not at all. It's a competitive environment. So, okay, so agreeable people are compassionate and polite. What are disagreeable people like? They're tough-minded, they're blunt, they're competitive, and they won't do a damn thing they don't want to do. So it isn't exactly that they're aggressive, although they will push you the hell out of their way if you're in the way. They're not, they're not like volatile like you are if you're high in, in, in neuroticism. It isn't defensive aggression, it's more like predatory aggression. It's dominance behavior. And so for someone who's, high, who's high, highly disagreeable, they look at the world as a place in which they can compete and win. And I'll tell you a story. I have a friend. I gave him my personality test, the big five aspect scale that Colin DeYoung developed huh, in my lab. And uh, I knew he was a disagreeable guy and by interacting with him. Um, I mean, he's even rude to people sort of spontaneously on the street. I actually like him quite a bit. He's very, very funny. He's also very conscientious, so you can trust him, but he's disagreeable as hell. And uh, so I gave him this test because I thought it would be funny, and he came out as the most disagreeable person in 10,000. So reasonably, reasonable in, in compassion, about 30th percentile, but like 0.001 in politeness. So he's extraordinarily blunt, and he'll just say absolutely anything, no matter how horrible it is. And he was often brought into corporations to sort of clean them up. So if a corporation was tilting and not doing well, they'd bring him in to find out who the useless people were and fire them. And I talked to him about that because I've had the misopportunity to have to not have graduate students in my lab, for example, that weren't performing well. And I find it very, very difficult to, you know, dress someone down and certainly difficult to fire them. I just hate it because I'm actually quite an agreeable person, much to my chagrin. And I asked him about that, and I said, well, what do you do? You have to fire people all the time. How do you handle that? He says, handle it? I enjoy it. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's so interesting that someone would have that response. I said, well, what, what do you mean you enjoy it? He said, look, I go into these companies, and I analyze the performance of groups of people, right? And there's, in those groups, there are people who are really striving, really trying hard and working themselves really hard and being productive. And then there's these people that are just doing nothing, they're completely in the way, they don't carry their weight at all, they take advantage every chance they get, and they're always whining about why they can't work. It's like, I find out who they are, I call them into my office, and I tell them exactly what they've been doing. It's like, hit the road, buddy, you've had your, you've had your run of it. And I thought, oh yeah, okay, fair enough. You know, well, I, I can tell you, you know, I've had situations in my lab where I had underperforming graduate students, and one of the things that was really awful about that was that it was really hard on the high-performing graduate students, you know, because they felt that even being in the same category as the people who weren't working hard and pulling their weight devalued what they were doing, you know, and that's exactly right. And so this is also why there's, there's a conscientiousness trait and an agreeableness trait. Because conscientious people judge you on your accomplishments, right? They don't give a damn about your feelings, not a bit. It's like, are you doing the work or not? Whereas agreeable people think, well, you know, your mother's sick and, you know, you've, you've got a bunch of family problems and, and we all have to take care of each other and it's no wonder that you're having a rough time. And, like, you can't say that one of those attitudes is correct and the other isn't correct. You can't say that. There wouldn't be those two dimensions if there wasn't something correct about both of them. But you can certainly point out that often they conflict, you know, and so the demand for, for inclusiveness and unity and care and the demand for high-level performance in a hierarchical structure. They're very different orientations in the world. And so, it's complicated for people who are agreeable and conscientious. And actually, I think often that large corporations and large, large institutions of any sort run 
on the unheralded labor of people who are high in agreeableness and high in conscientiousness, and they're disproportionately women. And my experience in large institutions has been that if you want to hire someone to exploit appropriately, no, not appropriately, if you want to hire someone to exploit productively, you hire middle-aged women who are hyper-conscientious and who are agreeable. Because they'll do everything. They won't take credit for it and they won't complain. And that's nasty. And I think that happens all the time. And so one of the things you have to be careful of if you're agreeable is not to be exploited. Because you'll line up to be exploited. And I think the reason for that is because you're wired to be exploited by infants. And so that just doesn't work so well in that actual world. And one of the things, one of the things that happens very often in psychotherapy, you know, people come to psychotherapy for multiple reasons. But one of them is they often come because they're too agreeable. And so what they get is so-called assertiveness training. Although it's not exactly assertiveness that's being trained. What it is is the ability to learn how to negotiate on your own behalf. And one of the things I tell agreeable people, especially if they're conscientious, is say what you think. Tell the truth about what you think. There's going to be things you think that you think are nasty and harsh. And they probably are nasty and harsh. But they're also probably true. And you need to bring those up to the forefront and deliver the message. And it's not straightforward at all because agreeable people do not like conflict. Not at all. They smooth the water. You know, and you can see, you can see why that is in accordance with the hypothesis that I've been putting forward. You don't want conflict around infants. It's too damn dangerous. You don't want fights to break out. You don't want anything to disturb the, the relative peace. You know, and if you're also more prone to being hurt physically and perhaps emotionally, you also may be loath to engage in the kind of high-intensity conflict that will solve problems in the short term. Because a lot of conflict, it takes a lot of conflict to solve problems in the short term. And, you know, if that can spiral up to where it's dangerous, which it can, if it gets uncontrolled, it might be safer in the short term to keep the waters smooth and to not delve into those situations where conflict emerges. The problem with that is it's not a very good medium to long-term strategy. Right? Because lots, lots of times there are things you have to talk about because they're not going to go away. And so partly what you do with agreeable people is you get them to figure out, and they have a hard time with this too. If you ask a disagreeable person what, what he wants, say, or she wants, they'll tell you right away. They, they know. It's like, this is what I want and this is how I'm going to get it. But agreeable people, especially if they're really agreeable, are so agreeable that they often don't even know what they want. Because they're so accustomed to living for other people and to finding out what other people want and to trying to make them comfortable and so forth that it's harder for them to find a sense of their own desires as they move through life. And that's not, look, there's situations where that's advantageous, but it's certainly not advantageous if you're going to try to uh, forge yourself a career. That just doesn't work at all. So, all right. What else do I want to tell you about agreeableness? Well, I could tell you a little bit about the, the, the regulation of aggression. One of the things I studied especially when I was in Montreal, was the development of antisocial behavior in children and in, and, in, uh, and in adolescents. And antisocial children, so they tend to be aggressive, antisocial children tend to turn into antisocial, there's conduct disorder, technically speaking. Conduct disordered children tend to turn into conduct disordered adolescents, and then they tend to turn into antisocial and criminal adults. And so I can tell you a little bit about how that progresses, I think, because it's quite interesting. And it isn't what people generally think. So, the first thing is, if you want to be criminal, the best way to do it is to be really low in agreeableness and really low in conscientiousness. Because low in agreeableness means things are for me and not for you. 
and you're not going to get me to do a damn thing that I don't want to do, and I'll stand my ground. And low in conscientiousness means you can do all the work, and I'll sit back and take the benefits. And so if you have someone who's really disagreeable and really unconscientious, you have someone who's starting to border on psychopath. And if you add high intelligence and high emotional stability to that, then you have someone who won't work but will reap the benefits, who doesn't give a damn about you, who's assertive as hell and who's smart. And a person like that's also going to be charismatic because extroverted disagreeable people are kind of narcissistic, but, they're, but they'll, they'll put themselves forward strongly. And if they don't show any signs of fear, that also indicates that they're confident. And it's easy for people to confuse that with competence. And that's how psychopaths get away with what they're doing, although they have to move from person to person because their, relation, their reputation will track them. So anyways, back to the development of aggression in, in children, the development of criminality in adults. Here's how it seems to work, at least in part. It's more complicated than this, but I'll put in some of the sociological elements as well. So if you take children and you group them together in age, age, uh, in groups defined by age, so let's say you have 32-year-olds, 33-year-olds, 34-year-olds, all the way up to 18, and then you watch them interact, and you code their behavior for kicking, biting, fighting, and property theft, then what you'll find is that the two-year-olds are by far the most aggressive of the lot. So that's pretty interesting, you know, because you think, well, children are naturally peaceful, and if they're aggressive, it's because they learn it. It's like, no, that's true for a small minority of children. But there's a substantial number of children who are aggressive at two by nature. Most of them are male. Now that doesn't mean most children are like that, because they're not. Even if you look at two-year-olds, who are the most aggressive human beings, most two-year-olds aren't aggressive, but some of them are. And most of those are male. Okay, so then let's say you identify this cohort of aggressive two-year-olds, and you track them across time. Track them for the next two to four years, or, or the next, track them until they're four years old. What you find is the vast majority of the hyper-aggressive male two-year-olds get socialized perfectly well. So by the time they're four, they're temperamentally probably still more aggressive, but they've become civilized little monsters, so other people can tolerate them. And that means that they've had parents or peers or educational experiences that enabled them to learn how to interact productively with other kids and to bring their aggressive nature under control. Some of that seems to be mediated by the opportunity to engage in rough and tumble play. And that's one of the things that we know that that helps socialize rats, for example. It's vital to them, but it also seems to really be good for socializing young kids. And rough and tumble play, which is something that adult males particularly like to do with young kids, by the way, not, not before nine months, because they're just too little, but once they become ambulatory and you know, kind of puppy-like, so that they're a little bit more robust, then you can play a lot with them, and you can play with them right at the edge of danger, too, which kids absolutely, they absolutely go nuts for that. They love that. So, when, when I had little kids, I made this kind of wrestling ring out of these two couches that we had that would hook together. And I'd bring them on there and, you know, toss them up in the air and catch them, you know, eight, ten feet. No, no. <laughs> no. no. A foot in the air and catch them. And they'd go like this, and then, you know, I'd catch them and they'd laugh, and I'd throw them up, and they're all freaked out, and then they'd laugh. And, you know, so they're learning trust with that in an embodied way. And they're also learning... And this is from stretching them out and wrestling them and twisting them around and letting them pull on your hair and hit you and all of those things. They learn deep in their bones exactly what can hurt them and what doesn't. And you want to kind of push them to the edge, you know, so that they can tell the difference 
between what hurts and what's still within the realm of the game. And you do the same thing when they're wrestling with you. So they learn not to you know, awkwardly stick their thumb in your eye or, 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 or do things that are actually painful, like grab your lip and pull it. You know, it's like, no, no, you, you let go of my lip. You know? And so that seems to help regulate the aggressive impulses and, and help the ch ch child find a more appropriate embodiment. You could think that what you're doing in some sense when you're rough and tumble playing with kids is teaching them how to dance. Because that is what you're doing. You know, you're making them comfortable in their bodies, in, in all of its extension. And building in that kind of body fluency that you see in people who are well situated inside themselves. And so that's something to really think about, you know, and it's, a, it's appalling. We know that the ability to engage in rough and tumble play among rats inhibits aggression, impulsive aggression among rats. We also know that if you deprive rats of the ability to, of the opportunity to engage in rough and tumble play, they, they show prefrontal cortical developmental deficits and manifest behaviors that are akin to attention deficit disorder, which you can then treat with Ritalin. And so one of the things that's happening with boys, because they're way more dosed with attention deficit disorder medication than girls, is that their natural proclivity to engage in robust and troublesome active play isn't appropriate for a school environment where you're just supposed to sit down and shut up and so the kids get hyperactive. And instead of letting them out to run around until they fall over half exhausted, which is exactly what you should do, you know, you medicate them so that their exploratory systems, which are um, the activity of which is facilitated by the, by the dopaminergic agonist, that's the ADHD medication, suppresses the play function. It's absolutely appalling. There's no excuse for it. You know, but it, it's, a good, it's a good indictment of the education system because why in the world would you take six-year-old kids and get them to sit without moving for five hours unless you want them to grow up fat and stupid? Why in the world would you train them to do that? Well, it's easier. That's one thing. You know, and, and when they're sitting there, there's nothing disruptive about the rough and tumble play and that can be quite, you know, play can be quite disruptive. So anyways, most of these kids are reasonably well socialized by the time they're the age of four using one mechanism or another. They learn how to regulate their aggression and they learn how to engage in fictional play structures with other kids. They learn how to cooperate and compete. And the advantage to having a well-socialized, disagreeable person is that they really don't let much get in their way. So if you can get a kid who's disagreeable socialized, that person can be quite, quite the creature, you know, because they're very, they're very forward-moving in their nature and very difficult to stop. But if you don't get them successfully domesticated, tamed, roughly speaking, by the time they're four, their peers reject them. And that's a big problem because your job as a parent is to make your child socially desirable by the age of four. Like you gotta, you, you, you wanna burn that into your brain because people don't know that. That's your job. And here's, here's why, you, you it's, it's easy if you think about it carefully. So you imagine, You've got, a, you've got a three-year-old child, so sort of halfway through that initial period of socialization, and you take that child out in public. Okay, what do you want for the child? Who cares about you? What do you want from the for the child? You want the child to be able to interact with other children and adults so that the children are welcoming and smile and want to play with him or her, and so the adults are happy to see the child and treat him or her properly. And if your child's a horrible little monster because you're afraid of disciplining them or you don't know how to do that properly, then what they're going to do is they're going to experience nothing but rejection from other children and false smiles from other parents and adults. And that's, so then you're throwing the child out there into a world where every single face that they see is either hostile or lying. 
And that's not something that's going to be particularly conducive to the mental health or the well-being of your child. If your child can learn a couple simple rules of behavior, like don't interrupt adults when they're talking too much and pay attention and try not to hit the other kids over the head with the truck any more than is absolutely necessary, then, and, you know, and share and play properly, then when they meet other kids, the, the kids are going to try out a few little play routines on them and that's going to go well and then they're going to go off and socialize each other for the rest of their lives. Because that's what happens, is that from four years old onwards, the primary socialization with children takes place among other children. And so if the kids don't get in on that early, they don't move into that developmental spiral upwards and they're left behind. And you can imagine how terrible that is, because a four-year-old will not play with another four-year-old who's two. But a five-year-old certainly will not play with a five-year-old who's two. Right? Because the gap is just starting to get unbelievably large. And so the kids start out behind, and then the peers leave them behind, and then those kids are alienated and outside the peer group for the rest of their life. Well, those are the ones that grow up to be long-term antisocial. Right? They're already aggressive. It doesn't dip down. Now, what happens to normal boys, roughly speaking? Imagine the aggressive two-year-old types. They get socialized, so their level of aggression goes down. And then they hit puberty and testosterone kicks in and bang, levels of aggression go back up. And so that's why males are criminals between the ages roughly of 16 and about 25. So, and it matches the creativity curve, by the way. It's so cool. If you look at the spike of creativity among men, 16 to 25, and it starts to go down, criminality matches that absolutely perfectly. So that's quite cool. So, and part of, so the testosterone levels raise the average level of aggression among men. It's more dominance than aggression, actually, and testosterone is by no means all bad. And then it starts to decrease at about age 25 or 26, which is usually when men stop staying up late at night, stop drinking as much, develop a full-time career, and take on the burdens and responsibilities and opportunities that are associated with a long-term partner and family. And so, well, so that's, that's the development of, of, of what, I, what I would call predatory aggression. Because I also think that the, the agreeableness distribution is probably something like predatory aggression versus maternal sympathy. It's something like that. So if you look at other, if you look at other mammals that are, that are predators, because we're predators as well as prey animals, if you look at other animals like bears, the male bear has absolutely nothing to do with the raising of the infants. In fact, the female bears will keep the male the hell away, because he's likely to kill the infants, and maybe even to eat them. So there's no maternality at all in solitary male mammalian predators. Now, it depends on how social they are, but roughly speaking, that's the situation. Whereas with human beings, males are quite maternal. So, but anyways, I think the, I think the, the, the extreme of agreeableness on the low end, so disagreeableness, is predation. And the extreme on the upper end is maternal caring. And so, and those two things compete, right? Obviously, it's very difficult to be both of those at the same time. And so men, of course, in the wild, so to speak, are very, very few women hunt in modern societies or in, or in archaic societies. And you can also understand why that is, because hunting actually requires hurting something, killing it. And it's, it's usually something that's not very impressed about being hurt or killed and that will emit a lot of distress while it's happening. And so for anybody who's compassionate, who's, who's got compassion as you know, one of the fundamental elements of their temperament, that's something they're just not going to be able to tolerate at all. So, there's, you know, in the evolutionary landscape, because that's really what we're talking about, there's tension 
behind the development of different modes of being in the world. And it, if you're good at one thing, that sometimes means that you can't be good at the other thing at the same time. So, I was going to have a guest speaker for you last week, but the person I had invited in <coughs> had some familial trouble, so that didn't work out. But she's a graduate student of mine, and one of the things that we've been working on in, in my lab, generally speaking, <coughs> is the delineation of the relationship between personality traits and political belief. And so I've told you a little bit about the things that distinguish liberals from conservatives, right? The conservatives are high in conscientiousness, especially orderliness, and low in trade openness. And so that means a conservative is someone who puts things in boxes, puts the boxes in order, and doesn't like them to be messed up, right? So they like the borders between things to remain determinate and, and, and uh, what would you say, and inviolable. And I think that's true at every level, from the conceptual all the way up to the political. I think the, the fundamental political question, and I think this is why the, the temperaments align across these political dimensions, is whether the borders between things should be open or closed. You see this reflected worldwide right now in the arguments about immigration, right? Because the liberal types are saying, open the gates. And the conservatives are saying, wait, you don't know what you're inviting in. And you might say, well, who's right? And the answer is, you don't know. That's the thing. Because sometimes the right answer is, open the gates. These are interesting people. We could trade with them. We could learn from each other. And sometimes the answer is, don't bother. What's going to come in is going to wipe you out and kill you. And really do it. I mean, so here's an example. This is why I think orderliness is associated with disgust sensitivity. And it's one of the determining factors of conservative political belief. What happened when the Europeans came to North America? What happened when the Spaniards came to North America? 95% of the Native Americans died. Why? Because the Spaniards brought illness. Smallpox, measles, chickenpox. All these things that the Native Americans had absolutely no resistance to. There were hardly any diseases at all in North and South America. The Spaniards showed up. Within 50 to 100 years, 19 out of 20 of the Native Americans were dead. You never know what people are bringing with them. And so what that means is that how should you respond to people who are outside of your circle of familiarity? Well, the answer is, one, they might kill you in all sorts of ways. Two, they might bring with them things to trade that are of inestimable value. So you're stuck. It's like, how the hell are you going to reconcile that problem? And the answer is, well, we reconcile it temperamentally, roughly speaking. So half the people are temperamentally wired up to say, no, no, no. Let's keep the damn boxes closed. It took a long time to pack everything in there and to get it into order. And the liberals say, well, wait a minute. You don't know if you've got things in the right boxes to begin with. The things that you're keeping in there are getting stale and old, and maybe we need some new ideas and new people to rejuvenate the situation. It's like, that's political discussion. And the political discussion has to proceed because there's no way of solving that problem except by discussing it. So, well, how does that relate to agreeableness? We also looked at political correctness. And so here's an interesting thing. Purely from a scientific perspective, you might ask yourself, if you talk about political correctness, one of the things that the people who tend to be labeled as political, politically correct say is, there's no such thing as political correctness, it's just a pejorative label that people who are opposed to those views impose on a set of beliefs to demonize it. Perfectly reasonable objection. And you never know, it might be true. But the thing is, psychometrically, you can solve that problem. And you solve it the same way that you solve the problem of what constitutes human personality. 
So this is the way we tried to solve it. And you can think about it methodologically, because that's how you should think about it. The first thing we did was collect a very large number of statements from press accounts that seemed to indicate what people generally refer to as political correctness. So we had a small team of people combing media reports to come out with opinions or attitudes that looked like they were characteristic of the, of the differentiation between politically correct people and people who aren't politically correct. So we got about 400 statements like that. And what you want to do is, you imagine that, that there's a core set of beliefs and statements that people are defining in a particular way. And you're trying to get a handle on what that is, and even if it exists. What you do is oversample it. If, if you can find questions that might even tangentially be related to the phenomena in, in, in question, you include those, because the statistics will take care of the excess. Okay, so then what you do is you take your 400 items, roughly speaking, and you get people to register the degree to which they agree or disagree with them, get a thousand people to do that. And then you subject that to a factor analysis. And what the factor analysis does is tell you how those questions clump. Now, they might not clump. So, for example, you could do a factor analysis of a set of questions, and you could find that there are 200 factors. Let's, let's say 400 items. There's 200 factors, and none of them there's no big set of questions that are clumping together. And you say, well, there's no evidence here that there is a single underlying phenomena that unifies those questions that you could reasonably characterize with a name. Well, that isn't what we found. We found that there were two dimensions of political correctness. One of them looked like liberalism, except that the people who were politically correct, in addition to being liberal, were very high in trait agreeableness. And agreeableness has almost nothing to do with the classic liberal-conservative divide. It's, it's weakly related in that conservatives are more compassionate than liberals. Sorry, liberals are more compassionate than conservatives. The difference isn't huge. And conservatives are more polite than liberals. And the difference isn't huge. So those are the two aspects of agreeableness. If you put them together, they cancel each other out. And so on average, conservatives and liberals don't differ in agreeableness. But polit political, political correctness did clump together into two categories. PC liberalism, we call it, and PC authoritarianism. The PC liberals were high in openness, high in verbal intelligence, and high in agreeableness. And the second group was PC authoritarians. And they were also high in agreeableness, but they were high in orderliness, and the correlation with that was negative in relationship to verbal intelligence. So we found that there were two categories of political correctness, that it does in fact exist, but that it's a very unstable construct, because Factor one, which was PC liberalism, and factor two, which was PC authoritarianism, were only correlated at point one. And so what it indicates, and this is our prediction, roughly speaking, from the lab, is to the degree that there's unity, so to speak, on the politically correct left, it'll fragment into two groups. One will be the PC liberals, and the other will be the PC authoritarians, because although they're united by their tendency to agreeableness, they're not united by other temperamental traits, nor in their core beliefs. It's the PC authoritarian types, for example, who are very obsessed with language control. So, <clears throat> and it's funny that it's agreeableness. I've really been thinking about that. And, the, the, what, and, you know, again, this is a hypothesis in development. But I think what's happening is that, you know, your, your temperamental proclivity allows you to lay out a kind of radical simplification on the world. That's part of the advantage of having a, a temperament. So if you're a conscientious person, the world is a place to go out there and work. If you're an open person, the world is a place to go out there and discover new ideas and do artistic things. And if you're an agreeable person, the world's a place to go out there and establish intimate relationships. And so they're, they're simplifying 
uh, perspectives they're, and, and, and simplifying personalities. They're, they're the manner in which you're adapted to a particular niche. I think what you see in agreeableness in relationship to political belief is a proclivity for people to divide the world into defenseless infants and predatory oppressors. And that that's blasted forward onto the political landscape and things are conceptualized along that temperamental variable. So, anyways, that's where we're at with regards to the analysis of political belief. Well, we've got three minutes left and I'm wondering if anybody has a particularly intelligent question or failing that, any question at all. Because I told you a lot of things that are I would say contentious, but I also think they're very much worth knowing. So, I'm yes. Do you say that um, high and agreeableness has a simplified perspective of like that sort of a mother infant? Yeah, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, yeah, projected onto the world. Period. Yeah, yeah. So, what would you say is the best way to go about like knowing that we have these simplified yeah. looking at the world? What then? It's really useful to investigate the viewpoints of people who have opposing views to yours. Because they'll tell you things, not only will they tell you things you don't know, they'll also tell you how to see the world in ways that you don't see it. And they'll also have skills that you don't have, that you could develop. So for example, if you're an introverted person, it's very useful to watch an extroverted person, because the extroverted person has ways of being in the social world that aren't natural to you, that you can use as, to improve your toolkit. And if you're disagreeable, one of the best things to do with disagreeable people, especially if that's alienating them from other people, for example, because it can, you know, people treat you like you're a selfish, arrogant son of a bitch, and maybe that's because you are. It's like, okay, so what do you do about that? One of the, one of the most uh, promising treatments, let's say, for that is get the person to do something for someone else once a day, just as a practice, and learn how to do it. Maybe you can wake the circuit up, you know, if you think that it's lying dormant in you, which is probably right. You know, I think we have a very wide range of propensities within us. Some are switched on, genetic propensities. Some are switched on, but I think that if you put yourself in the right situation or walk yourself through the right exercises, you can switch some of these other things on as well. But it takes work and, and, and dedication and discipline to do it. Proactively confront the things which are not a part of our personality? Yes. Yes, well I would say, generally speaking, if you want to adapt yourself properly to life, you should find a niche in the environment that corresponds with your temperament. Right? You shouldn't work at cross-purposes to your temperament, because it's just too damn difficult. But having done that, then you should work on developing the, the skills and, and viewpoints that exist in the space opposite to your personality. Because that's where you're fundamentally underdeveloped. And that way I think you can extend out your temperamental capability across a wider range. And to me, that's roughly equivalent as bringing a richer toolkit to each situation. You know, so if you're hyper-extroverted, you should probably learn to shut up at parties now and then. And listen, just to see what's going on, to see if you can manage it, you know. And if you're introverted, well, then you should learn how to speak in public. And to, and to learn how to go to parties without hiding in the corner and saying nothing to anyone. You know, and if you're agreeable, then you need to learn how to be disagreeable so people can't push you around. And if you're disagreeable, you learn... You need to learn how to be agreeable so that you're not an evil son of a bitch, you know? So, and the same thing applies even in the conscientious domain. It's like if you're too conscientious, you need to learn to relax and let go a little bit. And if you're unconscientious, it's time, like, 
Get out the Google Calendar, man, and start scheduling your day, right? And beat yourself on the back of the head with a stick until you're disciplined enough so that you can actually stick to something for some length of time and not living in absolute squalor, which is something that would characterize someone who's very disorderly, for example, because they just, they don't notice. It doesn't bother them, disorder. It's like, it, maybe they can see it, but it doesn't have any emotional valence, and so it doesn't have any motivational significance. You know, so, the other thing you might want to think about too, if you're choosing a partner, is try not to choose someone who's too distant from you on the temperamental variables, because you're going to have a hard time bridging the gap. You know, it's hard for an introverted person and an extroverted person to coexist. And it's really hard for an orderly person and a disorderly person to coexist, because they will drive each other nuts. Why don't you pick up? Why are you so obsessed by it? That's the basic argument, you know. So, so it's useful to know about your temperament so that you can negotiate the space with your partner as well. And I don't think you should try to find someone who's exactly the same as you, because then you don't have the benefits of the alternative viewpoint. But you've got to watch it, because you may hit irreconcilable differences of various sorts. And I've seen that most particularly among couples who are high and low in openness. That's a rough one. And also high and low in conscientiousness. That's another rough one, because they just cannot see how the other person sees the world at all. Okay, we'll see you on Tuesday.